The reading this morning is from Acts 22, 22, 23, sorry, to 2311. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, <clears throat> saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him, came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God and in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one, that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, we um, are continuing in our, our series here in the book of Acts, um, living as resurrection people. And um, I, I don't know about you, but as, as, um, as the scriptures were just read there by Emily so well, um, being on Palm Sunday, the beginning of that, had you not, had you not known, um, really kind of sounded a lot like the trial of Jesus, didn't it? Um, Jesus is brought before this council um, he is, uh, in this kind of Passion Week, he's put on trial. And so this morning, as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, um, I think these, these texts, just in God's providence, as we started this series uh, about a year ago, 
really start to converge uh, together and bring us into, I think, a, a good frame of mind leading into uh, Holy Week. Palm Sunday today, obviously the day that, uh, as, as Andrew read from this text, this is Jesus's, what is often referred to as his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, he comes fulfilling the prophets, um, prophecies riding on, on a colt, on a donkey, and he's received really as the next king. They are, they are ready to, to inaugurate, to crown Jesus uh, as the king of the Jews, uh, but in their mind, this is a political king. He's coming. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to set up uh, the, the, the kingdom once and for all in Jerusalem. Um, but as we see, the uh, atmosphere quickly changes within just a few days. And, and uh, mere days later, they're calling for his crucifixion um, to kill him. Obviously, those are probably two different crowds um, that, are, that are there, um, but the, the temperature, the atmosphere within Jerusalem changed quickly over that time. And, and so we will celebrate Good Friday this, for this Friday, um, maybe one of the most ironically named uh, celebrations that the church has, the, a Good Friday where we celebrate the death of God himself. Um, and the reason that it's good is because of Easter. So without Easter, it's pretty bad Friday. It's like the worst Friday ever. Um, but because in light of Easter, we get to call it Good Friday, where we will celebrate next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Um, and so we've entitled this series for this, 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 this year, Living as Resurrection People. And that's not just a clever title. John actually refers to us, uh, Jesus actually in, in the book of John refers to us as, as that, the sons of the resurrection. <laughs> and this is really at the crux of what we see today. The resurrection of Jesus is the validation of what Jesus claimed to be, that he was God himself, that he was God in the flesh. And our, our lives then, as resurrection people, as followers of Christ, are radically changed and shaped around and by this cosmic event, by this work and person of Jesus Christ, by his death, his resurrection, defeating death. Our lives are radically changed and shaped by that event. And so here, when, when we see Jesus' triumphal entry, you really get two reactions, don't you? And it's, it's the same reactions that live in our heart that we confessed just mere moments ago. On the one hand, he's, uh, we, they receive Jesus as Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, by the end of the week, and there, there are those that reject his claims outright, and these are, the two, these are the two reactions that we have to Jesus. We receive him as Lord or we reject his claims. And like all of our choices in life, there are results. There are consequences. We either follow Jesus in this life, now, receiving him as what he is, as Lord, um, as, as the creator and sustainer of the universe. We follow him in this life. And yes, that's hard at times, um, it's, it's not as hard in, in the time and space in history that you and I occupy. Um, but it's still difficult. It's still hard relative to our lives. But it's a fulfilling life, is it not? In that hardship and in that suffering, we find joy. We find meaning. We find our identity. We find purpose. We find a joy and a peace that passes our understanding humanly. And we follow Jesus in this life, as hard as it is, into the next life, into eternity into the life that we all want. And we want that because we're hardwired, we're created for that. A life where there is no more pain, there is no more suffering. 
where evil is once and for all uh, done away with, where Jesus is good and kindly rule and reign, his government that lasts forever, an economy where there is no haves and have-nots, where there isn't oppressed and oppressors, a world that we all um, dream about. And that's possible by following Jesus because that is, uh, that is the life. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is that life that we're looking for. Or we can reject Jesus. Now, what's interesting is on one, on one side, we think we follow Jesus. Okay, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge him as God, and I'm going to follow this God, Jesus, into this life and afterlife, which is essentially the same path as rejecting Jesus. It's just a different God and a different afterlife. By rejecting Jesus, we still follow God. It's just a God of our own making. And we follow that God. We, as disciples, worship that God throughout our life and the choices that we make. And we follow that God into an afterlife as well. But that God, or gods, plural, small g, whatever that is, is a life separated from the one true God. This afterlife that the Bible refers to as hell, it's apart from God. And we get snapshots of that. Remember the rich ruler who rejected Jesus. And, and in the afterlife, he sees this gap, this gulf that is between him and Moses. Between him and God and his people. And his, he says, go, please. He, he, he tells Lazarus, go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my family. And the response is, they wouldn't believe like, there's been miracles that have done and people haven't believed. And so this is the choice that we have today. This is the choice they had in Jerusalem. It's the same choice that we have. And so we've been studying this book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And it's, it's kind of focused, it's, it's narrow, focused now down onto Paul. His journey, really, we've looked at these three missionary journeys. His desire is to go to Rome um, uh, on his way to Spain, he, he, he has what he believes is, is his kind of mission. But he wanted to come back to Jerusalem. He wanted to bring an offering. Um, he wanted to try to unite the church, uh, both Jew and Gentile, together. And, it, and so he comes to Jerusalem, knowing that there would be persecution, knowing that there would be trouble ahead. And we saw last week, he goes to the temple. Uh, there's a, an, a, a ruckus that is there. They literally drag him out of the temple, slam the temple doors behind him, and uh, start to beat him and, and kill him. And it, it's, it's really, he's rescued by the Roman military tribune. Lysias is the commander that is there. And so his journey literally has him walking the same path as Jesus. Entering into Rome, entering, sorry, entering into Jerusalem, in the temple, and just being rejected outright by the leaders of the, of the Jewish church. And he's on the same path. He's falsely accused. He's arrested. He's slapped in the face uh, in front of, of uh, the Jewish court. He has five different trials. And so let's look at this first part of the text here. We're going to see these reactions to Paul um, and his message. But as we do that, I just want us to keep um, these kind of parallel tracks of Jesus' um, journey into Jerusalem and how he was treated and also with Paul. And then essentially our track. And what does this mean for us following Jesus? Now, we're not literally falling in, in, into Jerusalem. We're not literally drugged before a court. I don't think any of us will get punched in the mouth. Might. It's Belfast. 
So first reaction to Paul is the military tribune. He's been, um, <clears throat> he's, he's addressed the crowd, and as soon as he mentions the Gentiles again, they just lose their mind, right? Up until this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with this fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Crucify him. Away with him. Kill him. And as they were shouting, throwing off their cloaks, flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. So this is, what you, you have a guy, the, the Romans basically would do whatever they would do to keep the peace. And so there's a riot that's happening. These guys are getting ready to kill this guy. They drag him in, and now they need to know what's happening. What has caused the city to be in an uproar like this? Um, they let him address the crowd. He speaks in their language. Lysias probably doesn't know what they are talking about. They're listening intently for a little bit, and then they're, they're, they're ready to kill him again. So he brings him into the barracks. How will we find out who this man is? Is he an Egyptian assassin? There's confusion that's there. And we'll just do what the Romans always did. We'll just beat it out of him. We'll just, we'll just torture him until we figure out the truth. And I kind of feel bad for Lysias because he like over and over again tries to figure out what, what, what laws have been broken. He's got to try to abide by the system and he just can't really kind of figure it out. Maybe we'll get to the bottom of this if we just beat him. And it's interesting, right? Paul is, is being prepared to be tortured and then Paul uses the law. Now there's times where Paul is willing to be beaten. He's willing to, to suffer uh, physically for his faith. But in this time, the law is on his side, and so he uses it. And so we shouldn't be um, afraid to use the law for our own protection as faith, a freedom, uh, 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 freedom of faith, religious freedom. He knew that they would be in trouble if they whipped him because what they didn't know is that Paul was a Roman citizen. And so by law, you couldn't, you couldn't do what they're getting ready to do to Paul. You could do that to non-Roman citizens. You could do whatever you wanted to them, basically. But a Roman citizen, you couldn't beat without trial. You couldn't, you couldn't just um, start to torture them without a trial and a sentencing. He, was certain, he had certain protections under the law as a Roman citizen. And so he lets them know this. And I love the way he kind of does it, right? He, he asks them, oh, by the way, as you're preparing your whips and you're stretching me out, uh, are you allowed to do this to a Roman citizen? And they're like, mm-hmm. Uh, so he runs off and he gets his boss and he's like, this guy's a Roman citizen. And he comes in to question him and he says, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. I paid a large amount of money for it, which is a nice way to say he bribed. He, he basically bribed his way into having a Roman citizen citizenship. But Paul says, no, I'm a citizen by birth. Now we don't know exactly um, how that happened. More than likely, Paul's family were tent makers, leather makers. You could be given an awarded Roman citizenship um, by Rome, by services rendered to Rome. Um, so a lot of people think that it was through their tent making, leather making, that they probably um, were, were making products and stuff for Rome, maybe even militarily, things like that. And so Paul then was by birth, birthed into this family and is given that, that citizenship is passed down. And so the commander then needs to find out the real reason. We see that in verse 30, right? He wants to find out what's the real reason uh, that Paul is causing such a ruckus. And so he brings them before the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council. Maybe if I take them to this council, I'll figure out, has he broken Roman law? Has he broken Jewish law? And so we see the second reaction to Paul and the high priest. 
in uh, chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded that those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So here's Paul. He comes in before these um, 70 men. And he says, I have a good conscience. I've lived my life with a good conscience, which is really important because our character matters. Our character matters. Paul um, was going around preaching the good news of the gospel. And to do that, he had to have credibility. And it's the same with us as we witness to the good news of Jesus. It doesn't mean we're perfect, as we'll see Paul isn't perfect either. We'll even just see this in in these verses. He's not perfect, but he lived his life above reproach. He lived it with integrity. And that's important for us. We have to live our life as witnesses, as character witnesses, especially for leaders in the church. This is um, why when uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, hey, here are the qualifications of leaders. This is one of them. And so he says, listen, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the reaction from the high priest is to punch him in the mouth for that. And you're like, chill out. Like, bro, chill out. <laughs> like even, he didn't come in and was like, listen, idiots. He's like, brothers. And he gets punched in the mouth. So what's going on here? First of all, this is a really dodgy high priest. Um, so we know um, from church history, Josephus wrote about this particular priest. He was crooked. He was, he was stealing money. He, would, he, would hoard, he was called a hoarder of money. And uh, he was basically taking money from the priests that work in the temple um, for himself. So that'd be like me stealing money from John. And not that I'm a high priest or anything. I'm just saying equivalent. Like stealing money from your employees' paychecks. So a dodgy, dodgy guy. But why did he do this um, right out of the gate? His claim, Paul's claim, is that he has lived a life before God in all good conscience up until this day. So they would have seen this as blasphemy that Paul claimed as a now Christian that he was still living as a Jew with a clean conscience before God. Now, this is Paul's claim. I was a Pharisee. I was a Jew. I was just like you. I did all these things. I was on the same path with the same zeal that you were until I met the resurrected Jesus. And that's the thing that changed my life. That's the thing that that then shed light on the fact that all of the New Testament, as Jesus said, was a testimony about him. Paul's, Paul, um, his, his argument essentially before them is that Christianity is what you end up with. With a right thinking Jew that lives a good conscience before the Lord. That Christianity is the culmination. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This isn't antithetical to that. If, we would, if we'll understand those things rightly, he says, my whole life as a Jew and now as a Christian is one continual living, living before the Lord with a clean conscience. That Jesus is the Messiah that was promised to us in the Old Testament. And this is what he's punched in the mouth for. This is blasphemy. How could Paul stand before them and in their eyes be a traitor? In their eyes, abandoning the Jewish faith. Claim that he could stand before God in all good conscience up until this day. And so Paul's reaction um, is, I think, a natural reaction. Um, He says, he responds, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, what's up with Paul here? What's, he, what's going on here? 
He says, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Verse four, those who stood by, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so he's quoting um, the law as an accusation. And then when he's accused, he recants and quotes scripture again, quotes the law. So what's going on here? Well, commentators kind of um, go in a couple different ways with this. Um, Some say he was uh, reciting a covenant curse upon them. Um, Some say he lost his temper. This is just Paul lashing out. Some say he's being sarcastic in his apology. I didn't know you were a high priest. Essentially, you're not acting like a high priest. And some say he's genuinely apologizing. And so what are we to make of that? Um, I think if we take Paul's writings and his instructions to other people, if we, you start to get the mind of Paul, the personality of Paul, I think it's a genuine apology. Now, there's reasons you say, well, why did he, why did he lash out like that in the first place? Um, and, and we don't know for sure. Speculation is we know that Paul had really bad eyesight at this point. Um, Paul wasn't even able to write his own letters. He had to have somebody else write. So when you can't write your own letters, you, you, I mean, you're essentially talking to someone who's legally blind. Um, and maybe this idea of a whitewashed wall is really what he saw, a wall of like guys in white robes, like in that sense. Um, maybe he didn't know who said it. There's a lot of commotion. There's a lot of people saying a lot of different things. Maybe he didn't realize it was the high priest. There could be speculation that because this wasn't an official session, these guys were called in by the Romans, um, that the high priest might not have been in his official kind of garb and uniform. Whatever the reason is, we know that Paul's, Paul is human. We know that he's not perfect. And so his response is to, is to kind of lash out again. Um, if you have your Bible, turn to John 18, because we're going to look at this real brief account of Jesus in this exact same position. So if you look at John 18, verses 19 to 24. This is Jesus now. He's been arrested, and he's now being um, questioned by the high priest. A different high priest, by the way. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. Now that's important, right? He's not setting up something outside the Jewish system. He's still operating within the Jewish system. Why? Because he is the culmination of all of these things. He says, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? This is exactly what's happening with Paul, isn't it? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if if, if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And I then sent him bound to Caiaphas. So here we see Jesus, he doesn't lash out. He says, listen, if what I've said is wrong, then by all means, address what is wrong. Both Jesus and Paul uh, condemn the hypocrisy, but Jesus does it with restraint. 
That's important for us, right? When we speak out against injustice, of which there is plenty to speak out against, we do so in a way that is Christ-like. We live in a world that everyone wants to rage against injustice, where a protest isn't a big deal anymore. It's just a normal weekend. And there are things that rightly should be protested and rightly should be stood against. And injustice is a need to be called out and, and, and truth that needs to be spoken to power. But we do that in a way with decency and civility, which is so foreign to us today. That's not how people engage with these things, is it? Civility, civility, decent discourse. We just rage against each other. We talk past each other. We paint each other in different uh, unfair uh, light. And so even the way we engage with these things is an opportunity for us to witness to what Jesus is like. The third reaction against Paul is the Pharisees and Sadducees. So we see this in, in, uh, in verse six. Paul is uh, perceiving what's happening. He says, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Sadducees, Sadducees he cried out in the temple, He cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, dissension rose between the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were divided. Now, why were they divided? You had these uh, Pharisees on one side. Um, In our kind of terms, the Pharisees would kind of be the conservatives of, of their time. They actually believed in the resurrection. They believed in in, uh, spirits. They believed in angels. They believed in in the supernatural kind of world. They they also took the entirety of the Old Testament, um, the prophets, as as the word of God. And then you had the Sadducees. So they didn't believe in the resurrection, in in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in in, uh, angels or, or the spirit world. They only took the books of Moses, the first five books, the Torah, as as scripture. And so they don't believe any of this kind of resurrection of the dead or anything like this at all. Um, And so Paul perceives this and he says, it's with respect of the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, this is interesting because no one is told Paul while, while he's on trial. And this isn't even an official trial. This is just Lysias trying to figure out what to do with Paul. He's not on any kind of official trial. He hasn't been charged with anything. And so no one's even told Paul why why, why he's on trial. But Paul knows why he's on trial. He knows the crux of the matter. He knows what's really at the center of this is the hope of Jesus and the resurrection. Now, is this a ploy? Is he trying to divide and conquer? Does he see an opportunity to pit these two groups against themselves? Is this, is this his strategy? I think, Paul, I think Paul knew, it says he perceived, once he perceived what, what, who they were, I think he knew this was probably gonna happen. But I'm not sure that this is his main motivation for this. Paul wants to get it, it really is what is it that the core argument. Is Christianity compatible with their Jewish faith? And at the heart of that is the the resurrection of Jesus. It's interesting that the Pharisees then rise to defend him, right? These are the guys that have been like chasing down Paul. These are like, but as soon as he, as soon as, as soon as, this is like the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
And so the Pharisees are like, yeah, we hate this Paul guy. Wait, the Pharisees, what? You don't? And, and he starts to pit them against the Sadducees. And now they rise to defend Paul. Well, actually, yeah, the resurrection. Yeah, we don't see anything wrong with this guy. But the resurrection is always at the heart of these matters. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul um, writing, and he's writing about uh, these things. He's writing about the resurrection of the dead. Paul just said, this is why I'm on trial, the resurrection, the hope of Jesus. This is his writing to the church in Corinth. Now, if Christ is uh, proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's what the Sadducees said. There is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So Paul's saying, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we are all here wasting our time this morning. We should all go do something else. This is all a ruse if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. When even, uh, uh, verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Pretty strong language. Paul says if Jesus hasn't actually raised from the dead and and we're here gathering for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been gathering, we've been celebrating Easter, we've been doing Good Friday services, we've been doing all of these sorts of things, Paul says that's the most pitiful thing he's ever heard of. The resurrection is right at the heart of this. And this is why he says, I'm on trial because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're still waiting for a Messiah. And you're right. I'm a crazy person. I'm right to be done away with. You're right to defend the faith, the Jewish faith. But if Jesus has raised from the dead, that he proves that he is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. And now who's right and who's wrong? See, it looks as though the gospel is being tried in the balance of human opinion here, but in reality, it is the accusers who are on trial. It is the gospel trying them. There's a reason that Easter is the church's high point of the year. Now, every every Sunday is an Easter Sunday for us right? And every day is a holy day before the Lord. But there's a reason that we celebrate Easter the way that we do. It's the resurrection is the good news, is the good news that we've been waiting for. The death of Jesus, which we proclaim week in and week out at the table, as Jesus told us to do, is only good news if the resurrection is true. If Jesus comes and he just dies for you as a good example, as, 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 a, as a good teacher, as man, he really took one for the team, it means nothing if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. We're, we're just to be pitied if we're following that guy. You're just following a nice guy who died for you and that's it? That's pretty pitiful to base an entire religious, uh, religious framework around that. By the way, that's what all other religions do in some sense, right? 
All the religious leaders are gone, dead, buried. But we celebrate the resurrection. That's what makes the cross the good news. That's what makes Good Friday Good Friday. Because once we who were dead in our, once dead in our sins are made alive through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why we roll back this carpet and we take out these panels. And, and below me there's a, a tank and we fill it full of water. And when people receive Jesus, we baptize them in the tank. We buried, we, we put them uh, symbolically under the water. Buried. My old life is gone. It was buried with Jesus and now I'm raised to walk in newness of life. And this causes division amongst these leaders. As it always does, the gospel always causes division. Jesus said so himself, right? I've come. So we think Jesus just comes to unite everyone. But he says, no, I've actually come to divide. Because that's the nature of the gospel. It does what it does here. Some people believe the resurrection and others don't. And the very nature of the gospel is to divide us into two groups, believers and unbelievers. But the mercy of Jesus is to call all unbelievers into this other group. It's not a division then that the, the, this group can never penetrate this. No, this is the, the whole reason that any of us were able to be in this group of believers is because of what Jesus has done for us. And that invitation gets extended to all that's why it's good news. It's why it's good news for all. It's why it's good news for the poor. Because there's no way for you to buy yourself into that other group. That's why it's good news for the sick and for the lame. It's the power of Christ. Most powerfully demonstrated in God raising him from the dead. So this causes division and they start fighting again. They start fighting it out. So much so that the Romans have to come back in and get Paul out again. They were worried he was literally going to be torn to pieces. And so God in his providence uses his Rome to rescue Paul. And they take him away again. These reactions to the good news of Jesus, these reactions that we see are, are mirrored in the, in the same reactions of what, what happened when Jesus came. His entry into, into Jerusalem. And it's the same reactions you and I are faced with, even today. What will we do with this claim of resurrection? And if we believe that, that changes us into sons and daughters of the resurrection. Our life gets reordered radically around that truth. We follow Jesus into that, you know, that perfect life of heaven that we describe, no more sickness, no more death, no more whatever, that culminates in, in, in his coming to do away with those things once and for all. But it's not, we just, we're not just hanging out in this terrible place until then. He empowers us with his Holy Spirit. The kingdom isn't here yet, but yet it is at hand. Some encouragement for us because we have these reactions, but just as Paul, we need reassurance. We need this reassurance. And look at verse 11 of, of chapter 23 in Acts again. He's taken out of these barracks. He's taken out of the council. He's getting ready to be killed. They take him back into the barracks, into essentially prison. You know, they're holding him in custody. 
Imagine if you're Paul. It's hard for us to, to get in that same frame of mind. Imagine the experience you've had. A dedicated religious person persecuting Christians, essentially a terrorist. That's how fervent, that's how zeal, a religious terrorist terrorizing the, the Christians has such a radical encounter with the risen Christ that his life is completely altered and put on a completely different opposite path. One that he now realizes is the fulfillment of his Jewish faith. And so he sets out on the mission that Jesus himself gave him to take this good news to the othermost parts of the world. He's on these three different missionary journeys throughout Europe, establishing the gospel, planting churches, seeing disciples made, wanting to continue that, going to Rome, then on to Spain, but wants to go back to Jerusalem one more time. And there, almost getting beaten to death twice. Now you're in Roman custody. You're all caught up in this legal battle that we're going to see him have to stand trial three more times. This is only the second of five. Your plans seem to be kind of shot. God, I thought this is what you called me to. I think I would need some reassurance. I think I do need reassurance. And so do you. Because we think that following Jesus should be easier, and sometimes it isn't. Joy, yes. Purpose, yes. Fulfillment, yes. Deep intimacy with Christ, yes. Comfort from the Lord, yes. Easy street, not always. Not always. Sometimes these things actually come through and more vividly to us through the path of suffering. And so we need reassurance. And so verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said. Now you can just stop right there. The fact that Jesus shows up and stands by him and speaks to him is incredible. Take courage. These are the words of Jesus Take to Paul. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is a particular message to Paul, but I think there's things that are applicable to all of us that we can see from this. Four things and we'll be done. One, the Lord knows us. Jesus knew where Paul was. He knew his situation. He knew the danger he was in. His spirit, the spirit of Christ warned Paul ahead of time and yet still compelled him to go. He knew his frame of mind. He knew his emotions. Um, there's a, a story about, um, I think it might have been um, Bunyan, who was imprisoned for his faith. And uh, he had a friend come and visit him in prison, or an acquaintance, somebody come and visit him in prison, and said, I've been looking all over the prisons, up and down the country, and the Lord has sent me to see you. And his reaction, is kind of a crotchety Puritan would say to him, he's like, the Lord didn't send you, or he would have sent you here first. Oh. <laughs> The Lord didn't send you if you've been looking in all these other prisons for me. The Lord knows where I'm at. And if the Lord sent you, he would have just sent you here. He was that confident. He's like, I'm in prison, but the Lord knows where I'm at. The Lord sees me. He knows me. And that's enough for us to take courage, isn't it? That the Lord knows you this morning. He's not unaware. He's not surprised. 
And yet Satan wants us to think that he doesn't know us, that he's forgotten us. He's not with us. And we draw away. And we lose courage. So the Lord knows us. Secondly, the Lord is with us. It says the Lord stood by him. Who's standing by you would give you courage? Who's standing by you would give you courage? I mean, like if you had to do something harrowing, right? If you were going into battle. If you had to like take someone on in a fight. You'd want maybe Pete. Like if Pete was next to you, you'd be like, all right. That's a little bit encouraging. (laughs) Six, eight. I don't know what you weigh. I'm not going to guess, but it's all muscle. Right? There's certain things you're like, okay, I'm on my own. But if I have someone next to me, okay, I have a little more courage now. I have a little more hope. I have a little more that I can do this. And this is it. It's the Lord that is with us. The Lord Almighty. The one who we sing. Jesus' presence, his presence comes and comforts Paul. If the Lord is for us, who could be against us? Hebrews 13, 5, the Lord will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is with you. Jesus' presence comforts Paul. And it's the same for us. We have his spirit that is present to comfort us. Knowing that Jesus stood for us just as he stood for Paul at the cross. We have the same presence available to us. Thirdly, the Lord is for us. He's for us. You see this in two ways. One, he says, have courage. Take courage. (coughs) Don't shrink back. Take courage. We do this with our kids, right? Kids are are maybe scared to do something. Um, We were uh, on holiday uh, two summers ago in Turkey, and we were swimming in the ocean. And um, I had to just encourage my middle child because she was like, I don't want to get in the ocean. There's evil fish in there. (laughs) Those are her words, evil fish. (laughs) So she was just worried there were sharks and she had too much, you know, National Geographic or something. But I'm like, no, no, honey, it's okay. Like, you're just trying to have her take courage. Like, to, just trust me. I know what's under the water. I looked. I had a snorkel thing. I've, I've checked it out. It's only friendly fish down. It's Nemo and stuff. It's grand. <laughs> have courage. This is, this is it. He's, he's encouraging. Hey, I'm with you. I'm here. I'm for you. Secondly, he, he tells him, you've testified about me. What, he's, what is he saying there? What you've done is right. What you've done is good. What you've done is what I've asked you to do. This is good job. This is well done. You've done the thing that I've called you to Jerusalem to do. This is why he can write in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Death? Hell? Nah. Jesus has already beaten those things. He's, he's done that, and he's proved that by his death and resurrection. The Lord is for us. And then he's also not finished with us, lastly. So you must also testify in Rome. Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. You're not going to die here in Jerusalem. 
And this is, this, we see this with Paul and the other apostles, right? In these critical moments, Jesus comes and he gives them assurance. Paul, you're not gonna die in Corinth. You're gonna make it to the next stop. Now notice he, Jesus never says, Paul, don't worry. Here's the whole rest of your life laid out in front of you. It's like, no, this is what you need to know for the next journey, for the next step. Just be faithful in this season. He didn't say you're gonna make it to Spain. He just said, hey, don't worry. I've got a job for you in Rome. You're gonna make it there. And that's gonna be really important as we see in the next chapters because him getting to Rome is a train wreck. It's a dangerous journey. He's gonna be in prison for two years. I'm guessing you'd have to come back to this moment where Jesus showed up, where Jesus met you and encouraged you. Let me, um, uh, one last passage that we're gonna look at as we think about Paul, as we think about Jesus. We're gonna look at what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4, 7. In light of what we've seen of Paul, in light of what we've seen um, him following Jesus, literally following Jesus in his footsteps, and the call then that he has for us, and all the stuff that, that he would have went through, that the early church would have went through, this is what he writes. But we have this treasure, this treasure, this hope, this gospel, this this. Uh, presence of Christ, this treasure in jars of clay. That's what you and I are, jars of clay. Now, if you know anything about a jar of clay, they're pretty easily broken. It's not we have this locked away in a, in a steel fortress. No, this is, we carry the good news of Jesus, but we're in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. What encouraging news is this? And this came from Paul. This isn't like theory from some guy who wrote this from an ivory tower. This is a guy who bore the marks, the scars in his body to, 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 to show that this is true. When he says we carry around in the body the death of Jesus, he actually meant it. But this is the difference between me and you and Paul compared to Jesus. Because he says we were afflicted but not crushed. And yet Jesus was the one who was crushed. He was crushed so you and I didn't have to be crushed. He says we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. And yet we see in the Garden of Eden, if that's not despair, or the Garden of Gethsemane, if that's not despair, I don't know what it is. Him crying out three times, let this cup pass for me. In such despair, he's literally sweating blood. So that we didn't have to be driven to despair. We get perplexed. I'm sure Paul was perplexed in this moment. Which is why Jesus comes to him. He says we're persecuted. But we're not forsaken. And we remember the words of Jesus on the cross. Why? God have you forsaken me? 
He's forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We'll gather here on Friday to meditate on the destruction of Christ. He was destroyed so that you and I don't have to be. Because without him being destroyed, entering into death, and being resurrected and defeating that, you and I would only have destruction ahead of us. There would be no hope after that. We just have this nihilistic kind of future. And so Paul can write, we are afflicted and not crushed because Jesus was crushed. We're perplexed. We're not driven to despair because Jesus has taken our despair for us. We're persecuted, yes, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Jesus was all of these things so that we didn't have to be. This is why we gather at the table week after week to remember body torn for us, blood shed for us, so that if that's the worst that can happen, it's still good news. So that day when our body is given up, it's not the end. That's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. It's the good news. That's why Paul can write, to die is actually gain because I'm, I'm, I'm absent from the body, but I'm present with the Lord. What drives a man to live the, the life that Paul lived? Beatings after beatings. Imprisonment. Trial after trial, being misrepresented, having your, your name and reputation drugged through the mud. According to him, it's the hope and the resurrection. And this is what we are called to, to live as resurrection people. To follow in the ways of those that have gone before us. As they, and this is why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the point, that we follow Jesus and we follow him into hope everlasting because of the resurrection. That's why it was so important for Paul to stand and not just capitulate and not just give in. His whole life was changed because of this truth. And this is the call for us this morning. This is the call for all of us. For those of us that have never actually put our faith in, and trust in Christ, we have to ask that question. Is the claims of Jesus and the resurrection true? And if it's not, forget it all. But if it is, and the, and the evidence says that it is, then we have, a, we have a responsibility to respond to who Jesus actually is. The demands that he puts on our life. The demands that lead us into flourishing, that lead us into joy, that lead us into contentment, that lead us into peace. to a place where we're not crushed in despair, feeling forsaken. Jesus takes all of that for us and he gives us comfort even when we're afflicted. He gives us peace even in the midst of our perplexity. He gives us promises even when we're being persecuted. And he gives us hope even if we are struck down. This isn't permanent. 
Let's come to the table again and be reminded. Let's come and respond to this great hope that we have in Christ. Father, we thank you for this good news. As we do every Sunday, there's not enough Sundays in eternity to say thank you. Because the alternative is so terrible. You've made us uh, beings that aren't just physical. We're spiritual. Our souls that last beyond our physical life here. And to spend that apart from you in our own kind of um, just, just hell. <laughs> hell apart from you. The worst that we can imagine just continuing for eternity. And so, Father, um, give us the eyes to see this morning. May we respond in faith. Father, for those of us that are um, believers, may this make us even more courageous, knowing that you are with us, that you are for us. May we be encouraged by your presence even this morning, by the truth that's been testified, by your apostle once again, um, Paul, to us this morning. May we never... um, Grow weary of this. Father, I pray that um, even this week as we enter into this special week, this holy week, um, as we contemplate your death, as we um, have these devotions, um, may these things just become ever more real to us. May they become the fuel. Um, just like putting logs on a fire, may these things be the fuel that really stir our, our worship for you into flame, our passion for you into flame our desires um, to follow you. Would you do it again, even this morning? Amen. Let's stand together. We're gonna continue to worship. If you're a follower of Jesus, come, receive bread, wine. This uh, time to remember Christ's body broken for you, his blood um, shed for you this morning. May it change our lives.